0: In this episode of the Data Show I speak with Parvez Ahmad who leads the data science and machine learning team at Instart Logic. He has a great background. He has applied machine learning in many domains including computational neuroscience and most recently he's been interested in security. So we'll talk about the applications of machine learning to security but uh, I also wanted to take advantage of his uh, vast experience in uh, data science so we talked about other things, including uh, building models that are semi supervised uh, or require minimal supervision. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Parves Ahmad, welcome to the Data Show. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. So, let's first introduce you to the audience. So, you have a PhD from Berkeley. So, what was your thesis on?
1: Uh, my thesis was a combination of computer vision and machine learning. Um, I was looking into creating minimally supervised systems that can find patterns in very large-scale multimedia data. There are a few different threads there in terms of applications, but I was working on a general theoretical framework uh, that can apply to multiple application use cases.
0: So it sounds, I mean, so based on what you described, right, so a few things jump out right away, right? So first, uh, minimal supervision. So that, that seems like a powerful technique, for those who are not familiar with it, maybe you can explain a little bit what that means.
1: So, I mean, generally, there is this uh, division where people think about machine learning uh, algorithms as supervised, unsupervised, or semi-supervised based on availability of labels. Um, What I was particularly interested was in the kinds of problems where there's a lot of data, there's a little bit of information available, maybe there are some examples where you can somebody can supply ground truth, but it's really hard to get ground truth at a larger scale. So there, is, there are problems of this type even in industry, but I was interested in creating systems that can bootstrap from the small amount of ground truth that you provide and slowly you know, build up a much more robust um, underlying um, machine learning system that can do the goal that you're trying to accomplish. Um, for example, if you're trying to do a classification problem, And you start it off with a little bit of data that's ground truth. How can it combine the ground truth that you gave with the unlabeled data along with some person being in the loop to create um, something, a system that can scale over time and over data, basically.
0: So relate what you did to what people sometimes refer to as semi-supervised.
1: I think, so this is my personal opinion. there are a lot of these opinions floating around anyhow. Um, I think there is a way to build a semi-supervised, uh, machine learning system without having a person in the loop. Um, I am particularly interested in the class of problems where it is hard to take the person out of the loop because there is probably some complexity that the algorithm can't approximate. And it's very useful to have a person in the loop or maybe, there is some sort of relevance feedback that's extremely helpful for the system that the human can provide. So um, when I said minimally supervised, um, I meant that there's a person in the loop and having this person in the loop allows you to divide up the decisions into what the algorithms has to decide and what the person have to decide in such a way that you don't need a lot of ground truth and you can also bootstrap between these two elements.
0: So the other thing that struck me about your description of your thesis is computer vision, which, as you know, is hot because of uh, uh, deep learning. So when you were working in vision, were, was deep learning already fashionable? No,
1: but we did have a talk from um, Toronto about Boltzmann machine. It was probably like uh, just before deep learning uh, came to the fore, I think in my, when I was finishing up or towards the later stages of my PhD, there was a lot of boosting. Ensemble classifiers were very popular. Um, deep learning hadn't really taken root. It was mostly done in some small sets of groups. Yeah, Boltzmann machines was presented, I think, towards the later part of my dissertation. There was a talk in Berkeley, uh, and I heard about
0: essentially this idea. So then at some point, uh, you ended up at a research center, which actually uh, a friend of mine also uh, works at, Jeremy Freeman, Janelia uh, right. Research Campus. So how come so many of you cool data scientists and data engineers ended up at Janelia? And first of all, I guess open up, Parvest uh, by describing what Janelia does.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I think the core idea of Janelia uh, Research Center is to create an institutions like Bell Labs that is more focused on neurobiology and computational biology. Um, That was the idea that was pitched to us um, that actually drew me to go there. Uh, The second thing was towards the end of my PhD, um, I was really drawn to problems in biology and because there are lots of, there's a lot of data in biology and there's not a lot of um, machine learning use, at least at that time. And one of the people um, that I really respected, Gene Myers, who was in uh, Celera as part of the human genome uh, competition, uh, he wanted me to come to Janelia to work with him. Um, It was a difficult offer to turn down um, because he's a very smart guy. It was a great opportunity to learn from somebody that had solved some really awesome computational biology problems.
0: So a couple of questions. Um, First, uh, how much domain knowledge uh, did you need to? Did you have to go back and study a lot of the science uh, to get into the field? So
1: I think generally you need a lot of domain knowledge. I went there purely not knowing anything. So when I started first working with Gene, and we were starting to talk about uh, some problem that he had in mind, um, he didn't, he made reference to axons and dendrites, and I didn't know what they were. That was the level I was at when I started. Um, but you're completely surrounded by people who are experts in this field. Um, and if you're open-minded and you can soak up the knowledge you know, in two, three years, you can get up to speed pretty well. And uh, since you bring in something that's different, like I was an expert in algorithms and machine learning, and the combination was complementary.
0: And uh, Genelia is a place where people publish papers. So I imagine you continue to publish papers, but now in science. Yeah. I mean, it was a very
1: difficult uh, transition in some ways, even though it was fun, because the problem domain had completely changed. So you, you, you need some time to figure out what are the right questions to ask and what are the right problems to work on. And also the papers that are written in purely science domain have a completely different flavor from the papers that I was used to writing in engineering. For example, your method section in the engineering paper is extremely important. Uh, Whereas in the science paper, the results are far more important. They're almost the first section in science and nature. Um, Whereas your method section is only relevant. Sometimes it's even in the supplementary. Um, So it was a big culture change. Uh, It was very useful for me because it taught me to not get hung up on math too much and think about the problem, think about what's necessary to go after, how to decide what is the right question to go after.
0: And I notice actually on on, uh, on social media you still post on developments in this field, so you're, you're you're still trying to keep abreast of what's happening.
1: I mean, I literally, in some ways, did another PhD in the field. I I mean, after I did my postdoc, I became a research scientist with Gene, and after that, I had my own lab as an independent investigator there. So I was in the field for six six years. I was also in the middle of people who were doing extremely forward-looking research, so I really liked what I was doing. So I still keep up because I I still feel like the intersection of biology with computer science is going to be the next big thing. Um, I don't know how and when, but um, what I learned, it still stays.
0: And actually, uh, uh, I I learned about Janelia to Jeremy, who was uh, one of the early non-tech people using Spark. And so he became kind of a... Uh, famous speaker in, in the Spark community because, uh, you know, he he would come in and give talks about neuroscience, which was completely different topic than what everyone else was talking about.
1: Yeah. I mean, so incidentally, Jeremy and I sat side by side. Uh, we were in the same office structure. Um, yeah, he adopted Spark because he was working on essentially analyzing the neural activity of um, optically recorded uh, large sets of neurons. At the same time, I was also trying to combine computational algorithms with physiology, but I became much more interested in electrophysiology. So my lab was combining large-scale electrophysiology in small-scale systems with, uh, you know, P is greater than N type problems. I mean, if you know what I mean, it's where number of variables is actually much, much larger, but the number of samples is very small. Um, So it leads to sparsity-dependent solutions. Um so we had gone off on different tracks, but we were both trying to sort of combine uh, computer science and neuroscience in some way. All
0: right. So then at some point you uh, went back to tech in data science and and, and uh, we'll get there when we talk about your, what you're doing now at Instart Logic. But uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was uh, you, along with some uh, of your colleagues at Instart Data Science, just uh, did a. Nice overview of uh, the applications of machine learning in the field of security. So, first of all, uh, what prompted you to do this survey paper?
1: Uh, I mean, so we will discuss wh- how my group operates. Um, I mean, we work in web application delivery. One of the open problems and also commercially extremely interesting problems in this space is how to enable security on top of web application delivery. And when uh, I started looking at the problem. So one of the Helen, uh, whose formal name is Heju Jiang, who is the first author on the survey. When she and I started looking at this intersection, we realized that um, we wanted to be more thorough. There was, there were a lot of things that people were saying, but we were very skeptical. So, um, Since she was just starting out, and I was also trying to get a sense of the field, we looked for a survey that tried to explain to us what is the landscape of applying machine learning in security. We realized there was no such a survey, so we thought, "Hey, we are doing the study anyway, so let's actually try to summarize what we are reading in some concise form." That's the origin of why we wrote it.
0: And so, just to uh, uh, give some context to the listeners, so their survey paper they focus on uh, security related uh, uh, machine learning and AI problems on the defense side. So they don't really talk about things like uh, differential privacy or privacy preservation in machine learning algorithms, nor did they really uh, talk that much about ML applications in side channel attacks.
1: No, we did not. We were basically just looking at um, network security, web application security, we used the taxonomy that ACM had. We followed the taxonomy. We essentially, uh, there was a survey paper in 2007 or so. Uh, so what we tried to do is to get all the papers from 2008 to 2015 um, through top six or eight conferences that we identified. And there were about 150, 200 papers. Uh, it took a while. and. Looking through all of them, we tried to piece together what is the timeline of how people thought about applying machine learning in security. Um, what are the different types of security problems that people looked at? What are the different types of machine learning approaches they they applied? And where is it overused? Uh, where is it actually uh, underused? Um, like we found a lot of gaps in the field where I think legitimate researchers who are looking for new problem domains could go and focus. Um,
0: okay, so what are some of those gaps?
1: So, um, I mean, I'm going to refer to the table one and table two in the survey. It, the paper is on archive.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I will I will post uh, to the listeners. I will post a link to this paper in the blog post accompanying this episode.
1: Yeah. So um, if you look at the taxonomy that we use from ACM, we saw that there were different attacker types like passive, semi-aggressive, active. We talk about how to define these things in the survey. We also looked at different means of attack, whether the attack was on the server, whether it was an attack on the network, whether it was in a client app, whether it was attacking the browser or uh, these kinds of things. We also looked at the purpose of the attack, whether the purpose was to compromise confidentiality or to compromise availability, like DDoS type things, or to compromise integrity. And then we intersected them with semi-supervised machine learning, supervised machine learning, unsupervised, uh, we created a separate category called human in the loop, just to differentiate between semi-supervised and with human, without human. And we also looked at uh, game theory type machine learning, which is uh, coming back in Vogue these days. What you'll notice is that there are a lot of zeros um, in the anything outside of su- supervised. There is a lot of supervised methods that are off the shelf that people have deployed in uh, machine learning applications, but um, the other types of machine learning uh, hasn't really been used. Um, so th- I have thoughts about why I think this is, but these are my opinions. I'm not a security researcher, and I'm constantly talking to people in security to understand. Yeah, so a-
0: actually, Purvesh, before you uh, get into that, first of all, um, at a high level, who who are the people working uh doing research in this field are they machine learning people mainly in background or are they security people who know a little bit of machine learning
1: i think the second category is more predominant there are a lot of security people that essentially self-taught yeah correct so because of that because they did not actually grow up with formal machine learning training there are a lot of misconceptions it's also a great opportunity for people who are who grew up in machine learning to go and work on. I mean, this domain is huge, both financially and in terms of open space for research. But um, there's not a lot of effort. I mean, we had a security workshop that we conducted in Stanford uh, a couple of months ago, and um, you can ask a question, like for example, if you ask about web application firewall, you would immediately see who is the academic and who is not. The academics didn't really know about. Web application firewalls because it was not academically that popular and all the industry people were talking about web application firewalls
0: so what about so uh, so since uh uh the more predominant profile is someone who comes from security and learned machine learning so generally uh are the machine learning techniques uh the ones that uh, uh, a data scientist normally uses? So is it the same algorithms?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the, you know, they basically use scikit-learn or R or, or
0: whatever package they're comfortable with. So it must be, sm- must be small data then, huh? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, what's funny actually is that if you truly look at it, I mean, we are not Google scale company. We are a mid-sized company. Even in my company, if you look at a day's worth of log, it's billions of rows of logs. The scale of the problem is actually incredibly large. But typically, if you look at the papers where uh, people are working, they somehow curate a small data set and convince themselves that this is reasonable and go to work. And mostly because I think they haven't thought about how to build a scalable system. Probably they have already signed up for doing a particular type of machine learning method without thinking about what their problem really requires. I mean, within my company, there's a guy that essentially is, uh, you know, Jasveer, who is the middle author on the survey. He comes from a hardcore security background and I come from a much more machine learning background. So we butt heads and we essentially help each other learn about others' um, paradigm and how to think about it. Um, but if you don't have access to that type of um, pull from both sides, you probably just use whatever is available. And
0: just go by the way it. your background your what you did in grad school seems uh somewhat applicable because it my impression in security is that uh, you need to be able to do a lot with very little labeled data so the semi-supervised unsupervised is what really is what you really need in the real world is that right Yeah it's
1: much closer um to the kinds of problems that I like. So this is also one of the draws for me. There is really very little uh, high quality ground truth. And even if you think that something like, for example, if you're trying to identify a bot, um, what is a bot to a customer? One may not be the bot for customer. Two, there is a lot of, uh, it's hard to curate good quality ground truth. And it's also hard to really be confident about what is what, because you need to have a lot of domain knowledge. So from the machine learning point of view, this kind of minimally supervised or semi-supervised paradigm really suits uh, security problems well. I have not, there is only one data set that we found from KDD Cup from several years ago that was from NSA. And people complain in the literature about how that data set is not a good one to use, but that's the only one where there was supervised labels available at large scale.
0: There are not that many good
1: benchmarks in this field.
0: Interesting. So then uh, what, what about um, deep learning? Is this something that people in security are using?
1: So because of the lack of availability of the labels, you can't yeah, you really. Can't, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, there are problems in, uh, in my group where we use deep learning. Um, but a lot of the problems that we have run into, both on the performance and security side, tend to have this flavor that there is not a lot of ground truth. Um, I think the companies like Google or Facebook probably have access to large-scale resources where they can curate and generate really good quality ground truth and in such scenario it's probably wise to try deep learning but um, on a philosophical level I also feel like deep learning is like proving that there is a Nash equilibrium right you know that it can be done how exactly getting done is a separate problem and I also think as a scientist, I am interested in understanding what exactly is making this work.
0: Right, 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 right.
1: And the problem that I have with simply, so, you know, I have done this with one of my group members. When he started, he really wanted to do a deep learning-based project, so we gave him problems. And what we use deep learning to do is to prove whether it can be done or not. So, for example, if you throw deep learning at this problem and nothing comes back and the classification rates are very small, then probably... We need to look at a different problem because you just threw the kitchen sink at it. Um whereas on the other hand, if we found that it is doing a good job, then what we need to do is to start from there and figure out what is an explainable model that we can train. Um because we are in enterprise and in the enterprise industry it's not sufficient to have an answer. The customer is going to come back and say, Hey, I changed something and this piece is breaking, what is going on? And we need to be able to explain why. And for that, um there are issues in simply applying deep learning as is
0: so you mentioned something uh that also caught my attention um kind of a casual remark earlier you you said game theoretic machine learning approaches are coming back into vogue so can you explain that
1: so if you look at the neural information processing conference this year and the last year you start seeing i mean so the idea is as follows right a lot of the times when if you are I mean, if you take the survey and see that most of the uh, machine learning applications are from the supervised side, what you're basically assuming is that you collected some data. You think that the underlying distribution that you that is part of your data collection is going to be true. So this is a, in statistics, this is called stationarity assumption. You assume that this batch is representative of what you are going to see later, and you're going to split it up into two parts. You train on one part and you test on the other part. The issue is in security especially there is an adversary and anytime you settle down and build some classifier, there isn't somebody actively working to break it, right? So there is no assumption of stationarity that is going to hold. And also there are people or bots or, you know, bot nets that are actively trying to get around whatever model that you constructed. So there is an adversarial nature to the problem. Um, I mean, these kinds of dual sided uh, problems are typically dealt in the game theoretic framework. And so there are works now, um, I mean, there were some papers that started around. So,
0: so basically, uh, it's kind of a, you, you go in and uh, assume that there's an adversarial.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are two types of research papers that are starting to come. Uh, type one is where people are trying to make you aware how standard machine learning approaches can be uh, corrupted by a very smart adversary. I mean, there are papers from uh, Duck Tigers Group in Berkeley that you can look up. Uh, where essentially you can poison a machine learning classifier to do the bad thing by essentially messing with how the samples are uh, being constructed or messing with the distribution that the classifier is looking at. Or alternatively, you can also try to construct safe machine learning um, approaches that go in with the assumption that there is going to be an adversary, then what can I do so that I can be robust to such an adversary?
0: And so what are some... Generally, for the people who aren't following uh, this field closely, so is it basically the algorithms that people are familiar with, add uh, with some additional uh, capabilities? So,
1: I mean, the differential privacy that you mentioned earlier that we didn't cover is, I think, one of the subset of domains where uh, some of the algorithms are. Uh we have worked on a method uh, where we constructed a recommender system. So on the archive, this is the other paper that we have posted. So there is some level of information asymmetry that you have to maintain so that you make the problem, you know, computationally harder for the attacker than it is for you. Uh how you incorporate that, I think it's pretty open right now. Um There's
0: also purpose the other class of problems. Seems relevant here too, the ones that you guys also didn't uh, touch that much on, which is the uh, the ones where it's kind of the secure execution where uh, there's some kind of privacy preservation. So in other words, if I'm going to give you my data so that you can fine-tune your recommender, you have to guarantee some kind of privacy.
1: Yeah, so we didn't touch this, um, mostly because it doesn't have that much bearing on the kinds of problems we are looking at uh in my company or in my group but yeah that's also a domain that's essentially starting to produce interesting papers in the last two years i see much more of an uptick um, in machine learning where you assume some adversary and try to construct methods
0: so you also you you guys gave kind of a general overview of what a machine learning system would be in security right so you would have some kind of knowledge base data sources training data and some some sort of feature extractor.
1: Yeah, I think you're referring to the figure 1 in the survey. So the thing that I want to emphasize in the figure is that the dark lines are the ones where it's mostly deployed. What you will see is that it's uh, sort of flowing one way, right? There is not a, the dotted lines are the ones that are optional steps that you typically don't see in most of the papers that we surveyed. So how do you incorporate feedback, either from the human or from some kind of an error signal that's automatically being generated? How do you build an adaptive system that can adapt to constantly changing underlying uh, statistical uh, patterns? These things don't seem to be part of a lot of the literature that we surveyed. Um, So the dotted lines essentially are open spaces where I think a lot of the work can be done. The very dark lines are predominantly there. I mean, most of the papers that we surveyed have the very dark lines that we show here. For example, collecting some data, constructing some kind of a feature set or pre-processing steps, then training a machine learning model and calling it a day is pretty much the common practice. And I don't think it's sufficient. That's the point that we were trying to highlight. Here. So
0: you you and your collaborators surveyed the literature, but there's also the, the startups, right? So for example, I, I know, a startup here in the Bay Area founded by a couple of Microsoft researchers called DataVisor, and they, they do basically yeah. unsupervised uh, machine learning for uh, security-type problems. So were you have you been able to kind of, uh, now that you're back in the Bay Area, talk to people who are in industry working on applying machine learning to security?
1: I think, um, so we are certainly having a lot of conversations. Like I said, we had this uh, Stanford workshop with Dan Bonnet and that jazz, and Dan organized. We talked to a lot of the people, uh, both from industry and academia, trying to understand what they're doing. Um, I did see the podcast um, that you had with the Oh yeah, Fang, fang you. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so the thing though is that in an unsupervised learning paradigm, you need to have full trust in the distance measure. Uh, the underlying distance measure or what kinds of dimensions that you are using to construct your distance measure. How do you believe this? I mean, if I just give you large dumps of data, how are you going to do it? Also, a lot of the logs, the security logs, are not real valued, right? They are basically categorical variables that just have, I mean, so for example, the web transaction could be coming from a country with a particular browser. A country will have 200 um, different options. Browser will have, I don't know, 100 to 300 options. I wonder
0: if the unsupervised uh, nature of some of these uh, uh, approaches is just basically in the beginning, right? It's kind of that cold start. You start out unsupervised, and then you get better over time.
1: Yeah, but what I'm trying to say is that there is supervision in the construction of the similarity measure. It's not fully unsupervised. Right. It's right. supervised. It's unsupervised in the lack of labels, but somewhere else, there is a person that's you know, carefully constructing these similarity measures.
0: Right, right.
1: And that's also brittle, because these things are also under stationarity assumptions. So there is indeed space where you can try to get around these kinds of things. And I don't think it's impossible to do. We have at least figured out one way to handle this problem that we put on archive. But I I truly believe that it's an open area where a lot of interesting stuff can come. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So now uh, we talked about security, but... uh... You are currently the head of machine learning and data science as well as a principal engineer at Instart Logic. So, let's first describe what Instart Logic does and uh what your team does.
1: Sure. Um Instart Logic basically is an enterprise company. We our job is to try to make the web application delivery fast, secure and as easy as possible. Uh, so our customers are typically enterprise customers like Washington Post or um you know, One King's Lane, Um, we have more than 100 customers currently. Initially, the company started out focusing on web performance. So what we were trying to do is to figure out how to accelerate content so that um, it can be delivered um, very efficiently through uh, both the mobile, uh, meaning wireless channel, as well as the desktop um, channels. Uh, Once we basically found our niche in trying to do web performance for enterprise, uh, we also realized that we can actually offer uh, web application security as an add-on. And that's the origin of how, um, I mean, we started looking into web application security. The context of my group is that um, when I was in Janelia, as I was mentioning earlier, I uh, came to know one of the founders of the company. That uh, That's how I got involved, trying to help him start. Initially, I was an advisor. Um, I created... A machine learning-driven system that optimizes image delivery. It's called Smart Vision. Um, that's the brand name that Instart sells it under. We have two papers: one in ACM Multimedia and one in IEEE ICME. The method worked very well, and it worked in a nicely scalable way. Originally, when I built the algorithm, it used to do three to ten thousand images a day on my laptop in my garage, and uh, today it processes almost five billion images a day. Um, So it has scaled very nicely with the same machine learning architecture Um, and we have managed to scale it through new customers coming in, new kinds of data being pushed through the system. That made us realize that we could look at essentially how to do this uh, web application delivery in a much more machine learning AI point of view. Uh, From that perspective, the company created a data platform team and a data science machine learning team. Um, since I created the Smart Vision system and it was very successful, I took the lead in doing the data science machine learning work. Our team has been in place for a little more than a year now. So we've hired some really smart people, started looking into... So
0: Let me ask you this. Since you created the team and started building it out and hiring people, so how do you hire uh, data scientists? So what, what what are you looking for?
1: I see. Um So I I had a lab in Hughes and I typically look for, so some basics are necessary. I I see that strengths in statistics and uh, computer science are necessary. I usually look for systematic thinking. I also look for people who are very driven and very uh, focused. In science, recruiting is an art because... Uh, the projects have longer timeline uh, you need to be very driven for long periods of time to stay focused on the problem and i try to look for the same kind of element and we are very fortunate that we have recruited some people that have this element you you will see it as soon as you meet the people and talk to them and yeah i basically try to emphasize the science part of data science because i feel like what we are looking for is some really important insight that can really reshape the product and the company and we are just using machine learning as a tool statistics or computer vision as a tool to find these insights so
0: so uh, what about technical skills so do you so do, do you take the philosophy that uh, you want someone with kind of the strong uh science statistics machine learning background and then uh, they will pick up the the technical skills they need along the way or I mean, if I'm
1: recruiting for a very specific problem, so for example, if I'm recruiting somebody for a combinatorial kind of a problem, I would probably look to make sure that they're comfortable in large-scale frameworks like Spark. If I'm looking to recruit somebody that is going to uh, do machine learning that's human-facing, I would emphasize that they have a strong skill set in visualizing because this tends to be important when you're interfacing with people. So if I have an idea what track they're going to work on, I tend to look for a specific subset. But generally, if you're really good at math, if you're really strong in statistics, and you're very driven, you can pick up other things. I mean, I myself have gone into domains without knowing everything, and I pick up because I'm interested. Right, right.
0: So um, let's see. So you you worked in security, you worked in science, you highlighted some things in security that, at least uh, more data scientists should be paying attention to particularly this notion of uh, game theoretic machine learning uh, adversarial machine uh, uh, adversarial analytics and so on uh, so what uh, what yeah. o- what other be- things are on your radar these days that uh, uh, that have uh, caught your attention so
1: um i think in the what i'm really interested in these days is the idea of Explainable machine learning. I find the idea that it's not simply that we build machine learning systems that can do a certain classification or a segmentation job very well. I'm starting to be really interested in the idea of how do we build these systems that are interpretable, that are explainable, where you can have faith in the outcome of the system by inspecting something about the system that allows you to say, hey, this was actually a trustworthy result. Or if a uh, feedback comes back, like, you know, um, like reinforcement and learning style, are there other methodologies that we can construct where some kind of a user feedback can be taken into account to quickly adapt the current state of the system without having to start all over again, train everything from scratch?
0: You know, someone a few weeks ago was uh, was uh, telling me that uh, we need to distinguish between interpretable and explainable. I'm trying to remember <laughs> I'm trying to remember what their point was, but uh, at that time it made sense. So maybe so explainable is something you can go to a business person and say, "This is how this thing works, right?" So, or or, or this is why yeah. this thing is producing this result. I can, interpretable. Right. I wonder what what this distinction is. Now that I think about it, I can't I can't remember. Yeah. So uh,
1: I mean I can take a shot for example when you get a recommendation for a movie in something like Netflix or for a song in Pandora let's say it said hey I'm recommending this uh, item to you because you liked this other thing you can see that okay maybe it's worth clicking here right I mean it allows you to have a little bit more confidence where you understand you interp- you basically it's explaining to you why this decision was arrived you can also say hey the variable importance was like this and this is why the system did uh, x y and z but the problem is that for most people that are not machine learning this does not make sense but there are also ways to provide explanations that may make sense to somebody that's not a machine learning person but somebody that's actually trying to use this system in real life
0: so how about this i have a, an algorithm for you it's uh, it's uh, composable it's uh, composed of several layers and at the end I have an algorithm that has three hundred million parameters. Is that something that you can explain? <laughs> so this yeah, is the so whole deep this, learning this thing. Great,
1: right? Yeah, this I mean that's a bit. the problem is there there is a very good thesis about sample complexity of deep learning. I mean people, you know, just like how we look at algorithms and think about algorithmic complexity. There is also a way to think about machine learning algorithms and think about how much data do you need to make it stable and work, make it work well right this is the idea of algorithmic sorry sample complexity i feel that uh, some of the more complicated black box methods um like the deep learning style they have very large sample complexity and that means that only some sets of problems will arrive at a good answer also at the same time there is this very famous paper called no free lunch theorem right it basically says that there is no one method that will solve all problems at the equally well and um i'm i'm starting to see recently uh, talk about essentially looking for different deep learning architectures which in some ways to me is the equivalent of feature learning right but instead of feature learning you're essentially learning architectures because differently constructed architecture evolves you into a different feature
0: yeah i'm also parves i'm also starting to think in terms of two notions of learning, right? So there's the statistical pattern recognition where your objective is to make a prediction. And then, you know, I mean, usually in the context of classification, regression, or some other thing. Uh, and and this, in this perspective, usually you need a lot, you need some data and depending on the algorithm, you may need a lot of data and it's all about discovering features. Uh, so that's pattern recognition. So the other, Way of thinking of learning is kind of much more of treating it as your learning is the process of building a model, right? Right. So, right. And then you can imagine, you can imagine what would have happened differently, more efficiently, because you have a model of how things work.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of the problems, including computer like uh, web application security, are fundamentally behavior problems, right? There is a policy. Someone is not following the policy or they're doing something that is unexpected or unwanted. And you need to have a model of uh, what the behavior looks like and you need to have a model of when these violations happen. Um, but these kinds of problems, simply thinking about the problem as a simplified classification problem is too simplistic. I don't think it captures how um, security domain works or even policy setting in the uh, you know web performance works. Um, yeah,
0: one, I mean, to me, if you think of learning as model building, then in the process, maybe you're even constructing small castle models of how the world works, so you have a better, better understanding of, of basically going back to what you were talking about, explainability and understanding the limitations of your model, even right? So.
1: Yeah, and if you talk to a lot of the people that came from biology and you know neuroscience. It's probably great to have a deep, like some black box model doesn't, I, I don't have a problem with deep learning. I mean, it solved some really hard problems for in terms of translation and such, which is really awesome. But it's but it's, not, uh, it's
0: all, it's pattern recognition, basically, right? So Pattern recognition and under favorable
1: conditions, like having a lot, lot of data, having the right kind of setup. But if you, if you basically say that, hey, um, this person has cancer. But you can't explain why you think so. That's very problematic. Right. I mean, so there are many things in life where I think not just a particular decision, but some insight into how the decision is arrived at is probably important. Security is one of these domains. A lot of enterprise problems are of this domain because your customer wants an explanation.
0: Actually, uh, you're you're kind of uh, uh, in a you have the uh, perfect background these days because uh, you have started out machine learning. Then you started hanging out, you hung out with neuroscientists for six years. Now you're back in data science. <laughs> well, this is back home in some ways, but... Yeah, no, most... but I mean, so you must have learned something hanging out with neuroscientists, right? So
1: Well, I did experiments where I was trying to explain behavior of the animals. So then, you know, you start to understand that it's not enough. It's not enough to say, because models are not sufficient. I mean, models are great, but you also need someone to believe in your model, then comes the game where you have to have a model that you can explain why this is believable.
0: So are you going is, to, is the plan that you, you're going to start uh, or start or continue publishing things in security or that was just kind of a opportunistic uh, let's do the survey article?
1: No, no. Uh, so uh, let me use this as an opportunity to at least give you a brief outline of what we are doing in my group. We work on three tracks. One of them is web application security. We did the survey because we were trying to be thorough and really understand how the lay of the land is so that we know where we should go. We will continue to publish. We have another algorithm paper called Helios that is on Archive that has come out. It's also under review. We'll continue to publish because we feel like it's a huge open space. Um, The second track that we work on is about understanding uh, how to model what is good quality of experience for web applications. So for example, uh, this is a question a lot of the browser people in Chrome, Firefox people and also web application delivery companies are interested in uh, because there is a particular user experience that a website publisher wants to create. How do you know that that particular experience got delivered on your client, right? And this space is also pretty open. We are starting to do a lot of crowdsourcing work. Some of it has gone out and it has uh, found some popular reception we'll continue to publish there the third kind of thing is trying to really combine computer vision and machine learning and statistics to create new optimizations at application level so that we can make the application delivery faster better uh, these are the three tracks my team works on and all three as far as i can tell right now seem to be green fields there's a lot of opportunity to do hardcore machine learning sometimes even new
0: kinds of machine learning and also it sounds it seems like. Uh... I'm not I'm not uh, immersed in these fields at all, but uh, it's it's uh, whatever it is that you guys produce uh, will have impact uh, across many many uh, users of uh, web applications
1: yeah, for example, the ICME paper has one citation right I mean for an academician old academician like me, that's probably bad, but I know that every day Hundreds of millions of people use that particular method, and it impacts people in real life every day. So, in terms of really impacting, you know, web has become a very important platform. A lot of commerce is done using web as a platform. So, these problems have a very strong impact in real life for a lot of the people across the world. Um, and the secure, sorry, the network connectivity outside of US, especially in developing countries, is very different. So, companies that essentially start to focus on web application delivery in developing countries are going to run into issues. So, it's, it's a very hot, interesting area.
0: Well, Parvez Hamad, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thank you. To learn more about big data, data science, and AI, come to our many in person events. You can find them at strataconf.com or O'ReillyAICon.com You can follow Parvez Ahmad on Twitter at PerceptPA Thank you for joining us If you like the show you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode